Peace be with you. If you got your Bible, open to Luke chapter 10. You can grab one in the seat. You can turn it on if that's your style. It's a short passage we're going to read, Luke 10, verse 38 through 42. Luke 10, starting in verse 38. So it says, now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village. And a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. She had a sister called Mary. who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. The Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. This is the word of the Lord. I'm not a chemist, uh, but I've been reading about some of this stuff, and I'm fascinated by it, but I, it takes, essentially it takes 59 elements, roughly 59 elements uh, to make you. You are composed of 59 elements, um, oxygen, carbon, hydrogen, calcium, phosphorus. Did I miss one maybe in there somewhere? Oxygen uh, fills up 61% of the space inside of you. The reason why, uh, if you've ever thought, gosh, he's full of hot air. Well, you're not far off. The reason why I don't float off, the reason why you don't float off, and the reason why your boss doesn't float off as you wish he or she would, is because most of that oxygen is bound up with a thing called hydrogen, which makes what, class? Yes, this is water. It's crazy. Actually, you are composed, those six elements basically make up 99.1% of you. The remaining, like, less than 1%, I won't mention, half of them I can't even pronounce. And a lot of them, we don't even know exactly what they do or what purpose um, they serve. Uh, But scientists essentially got to this place where there's only 24 elements that scientists consider, consider essential to making a human being. And for this kind of chemistry, uh, to the brainiacs that are trying to um, figure out how to replicate you, this stuff is vital to them. They, they love knowing this. To you, it's probably trivial scientific mumbo jumbo, which is why I told you. <laughs> you don't care about it that much, and, and I understand, because the reality is you uh, feel uh, on, a, on a deep level, I'm sure, um, you are far more than just um, a bunch of elements on the periodic chart, right? Um, so, the point I'm making is, is we don't care about that. We, we care about what's underneath or what's behind, what's driving these elements, what's, what's, really, what's really going on inside of us. I'm not just this flesh walking around of particles. There's more to me than that. I like how the uh, occasional uh, science writer, Bill Bryson, and he wrote about this in The Body, A Guide for Occupants. He says, no matter what you pay 
or how carefully you assemble the materials, you are not going to create a human being. You could call together all the brainiest people who are alive now or have ever lived and endow them with the complete sum of human knowledge, and they could not between them make a single living cell. That is unquestionably the most astounding thing about us, that we are just a collection of inert components, the same stuff you would find in a pile of dirt. I've said it before in another book, but I believe it's worth repeating. The only thing special about the elements that make you is that they make you. That is the miracle of life. Or as the uh, author and counselor, Dr. Chip Chip Dodd says, you may be just dust, but you are stardust. Stardust, you might be, and I might be, miracles that you might be. You're just such a wonderful miracle. I've been dying to hear that all week. Uh, We might be miracles, we might be stardust, yes, indeed. Um, But we seem to be stars that are burning up lately, if you've noticed. Uh, We are overworked, overdrawn, anxious, scared, angry, bitter. Uh, We are paralyzed by what seems like a million threats. And we are paralyzed by what seems like a million opportunities even, for some of us. We are the loneliest, anxious culture quite possibly to ever live. Good morning, welcome to Sunday morning church, right? Um, The numbers are trending worse every year. Um, Here's some stats, according to Barna, a widely respected research institute. In case you didn't already come in depressed this morning. 45% of adults feel lonely. 46% feel depressed. Half of all U.S. adults identify as burned out. 51% say they feel anxious. And 61% state that feeling stressed out is a commonplace reality for them. How you doing? You all right? You're like, well, I wasn't in any of those percentages. Well, good for you. This sermon series is not for you. But for the rest of us normal human beings, we find ourselves in these moments sometimes. I'm not making light of this. You know, we chuckle and we laugh. I'm not making light of it. I'm, I'm really not. I mean, in some ways you have to mock your neurotic tendencies. And, you know, I'm, in some ways we laugh about this stuff, but we know it's a problem. I'm not talking above this. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not talking at it. I'm not pointing the finger necessarily. I'm, I'm simply saying, hey, this is, I'm just trying to express that as Christians, we sh- this should cause us pause and concern. And we should carefully consider and carefully discuss what in the world is going on. Christians should care about these numbers. I would say, and I want our church to feel this sense as a community of people, that this might be one of the greatest challenges of our time and in our place. What is going on with us? I think our hearts underneath are all asking this. What is going on and should I accept this as my permanent reality? Whether that's in you personally or just in your loved ones, or your friends, or your coworkers, whatever it is. Should I accept this? Like, is this just what it is to be in this time, place, culture? The good news is the gospel says, no, no. You do not have to accept it. You should not accept this as a permanent reality. That's what I would say. Becoming a Christian, being one who follows Jesus as Lord, isn't just getting out of hell one day. It's about detangling yourself from hellish ways that you currently live in, here and now. I firmly believe that. My continual argument, you've heard me say this before if you come here, my continual argument in this church is that when Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, 
Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. When Jesus said this, my, my argument is this. I don't think Jesus, I don't think this was hyperbole. I think he meant it. I really actually believe in my bones that Jesus meant what he said. So what's the problem? <laughs> what is the problem? Because I see plenty of Christian people burning out and overwhelmed. I see plenty of Christians feeling and experiencing life that way, just as non-Christians do. So, I mean, what is going on? Did Jesus just not understand our culture, right? He's like, this was a man, a great teacher for a certain time and a place in ancient culture, but now, man, things are different. We've got Twitter, you know? Is that what's going on? And I think, because I think super highly of you, I think you're like, no, there's no way. He's been too accurate on too many things in current day, in current culture. Instead, I think we just need to get clear as a church. This is where I really, really want as a pastor, the other pastors want this for you. I want us to be, get really clear in our minds about what is it that Jesus has said about our human condition, like our human reality, the way in which we operate in any culture, in any time, in any place. Why are souls prone to be heavy laden? What happens to us? And so like what I want us to do is like, what does Jesus actually say on the topic of restlessness and rest? What does he actually say? Can I synthesize it and get an understanding of it and write it on a drink napkin? You know, like, can we get it down to a bite-sized idea other than just, yeah, Jesus doesn't want you to be worn out all the time in your mind. I mean, what if Jesus was warning us about the essential elements of spiritual and emotional exhaustion all along? What if he's been saying it all along in the scriptures and also talking about the essential elements of rest all along? We just never really took him that seriously. I mean, we just never really, it was like so many of these verses or these stories that we come across and we go, yeah, 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 yeah. That's, cool. That's not my life. There is more to you than 24 essential elements on the periodic chart. So much more to you. And there is more to rest, the idea of rest that Jesus speaks of, than just taking a vacation and taking a nap, which God bless vacations and naps. And by the way, the Americans are the worst at taking them, statistically. We leave them on the table half of the time. And today we begin this series called Essentials of Rest, looking at critical sources of restlessness, anxiety, and worry. The, the sources that, that, that we actually see in the scriptures. And as we begin this conversation, let me just state something and on the outset, like here at the beginning of this series that is probably obvious to us, but I think we sometimes forget. And that is this, Jesus is the source of rest. He is the source. Like I, true rest requires diligent attention upon Jesus, paying attention. His words, 
and his rhythms of life, not just like what he teaches, but also just what do you see him doing? You know, the four gospels at the front of this New Testament are these biographies of Jesus. And so it's not just, you don't just see and hear and learn like what he says, you get to watch the way he lives. What do you see him doing? The reality is that no disciplines will really transform you unless they're aimed at leading you into presence with Jesus. Presence with Jesus, being present to him, listening to him, learning from him. I don't care how many vacations you take in a year because you may be sitting there and going, man, I have a great vacation package at my job and I take every one of them. Good for you. But I don't care how many vacations you take. And I've seen this in my own life. You might rest up your body some. You You might get a solid eight, nine at night for five or six days straight and feel great about that. But I don't care how many vacations you take, you're not gonna get at the root of your restlessness, your perfectionism, your compulsions to please and perform. You'll be walking on the beach looking at email. Or you'll be walking on the beach or riding in the boat on the lake or whatever it is that you do, and you'll be thinking about all the junk that you're gonna have to go back to, and you're gonna be worried about it, right? We have to think of Jesus as this, as this kind of North Star, a shelter, a refuge, kind of shade and nourishment for us that we must continually stay present to and connected to in our normal rhythms of life. And, and this is throughout the scriptures. If we drift from this idea that, 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 that Jesus is our rest, that paying attention to him and being present to him is our rest, then we will atrophy. Your minds will atrophy, your hearts will atrophy. And, and look at, this is Jeremiah 17. This is one example of many I could go to. But you know, the Old Testament has imagery for this idea. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water, that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought for it does not cease to bear fruit. Apparently trees get anxious too. And this is Psalm 1, you know, this kicks off the poetry right in your, in, in, in your uh, book of Psalms. Psalm 1 is this, same idea. Tree, the blessed man or woman is the one who is planted by water. <coughs> It comes up over and over and over again. Anxiety versus attention to Jesus is probably what jumped out of you in a little short passage you just read about Mary and Martha, isn't it? So short, but so instructive. And it's one maybe you're familiar with. We have two women here, both love Jesus. And Jesus loves them both. But one is anxious and troubled. That's the language that is used. And one is present, relaxed, and learning, right? And it's clear, I think when we read the story, it's clear that Jesus is quite encouraged with the present, relaxed, learning posture, isn't he? But let's also be clear about the good of Martha. Can we do that for a moment? You know? Because I think sometimes people speak about this story in inappropriate ways. Martha welcomed, this is the first verse, she welcomed Jesus into her house. Martha did that. And she was serving him and she was showing Jesus hospitality, which is frequently noted in the scriptures as a a godly virtue, hospitality. Furthermore, when she takes um, Jesus aside and she basically tattletales on her sister, right? 
Anyone ever done that? When she tattletales on her sister, um, which is not the way you handle your bitterness, in case you're wondering, but that's another sermon. But she does this. Um, but notice, Jesus doesn't rebuke or lecture her like I think some, I've heard some people say. I don't think he's doing that. Martha, Martha is a concerned and tender way of speaking. He's being kind and compassionate to her. Jesus is not only pleased with Mary, I actually think he's pleased with Martha. He just wants something better for her. So what was the lesson that he was teaching then in the little scene? What, what was he trying to get across? What's the difference between the two women? It's not some terrible rotten thing. That's what I find so interesting about the story. I don't even think that there's an indication that Martha is in sin. I don't think the story, by the way, is also, I don't think this is meant to promote idleness over activity. That's not what it's saying. And I don't think the main message here is that hard work and serving always leads to anxiety and feeling troubled. I don't think so. Jesus came as one to serve. We're meant to serve. No, I think actually when you keep the little story in context, and this is what's difficult about reading the gospels in, and, and little moments, you just read a passage and then you move on, you don't see what's coming before it, you don't see what's after it, you, you miss some things. But in context in which Luke has placed in, something deeper has emerged. A lot of scholars talk about this story when they, and they recognize that, wait, what village is this that they're in? This is Bethany, which means when we looked at John 11, we see, oh, that's what's going on here. He visited Mary and Martha and we see that chronologically, this doesn't fit Luke. Luke, you're a moron. You put this in the wrong space in time. And Luke, if he could answer you back, would say, no, I didn't. Pay attention to what I'm saying. I strategically put it there on purpose to get across the message. I think that this story is telling you something that's much, much deeper. And the major point here, the thing that Luke is getting across is this, and this is the main idea of what I want to try to grasp this morning is this presence to Jesus is a discipline in a world of social and cultural pressure. Let me prove to you why I'm so right. You see, Mary was a woman, in case you didn't grasp that. <laughs> in their day, even more, right? Even more in their day, women had this social acceptable roles and places in which they were allowed to be in and ones that they weren't. So when Luke says that Mary, verse 39, sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching, that's, that's an idiom for saying that she has taken up the official posture and position of student and disciple, which in their context was breaking social convention, okay? And so when Martha asks Jesus to talk to her sister, she's essentially saying this. This is basically what she's saying. She's saying, Jesus, look at my sister. She is acting strange and being countercultural. It's not helpful to me and it's annoying. Put her back in her place. Get her back in the kitchen. That's where women belong. And Jesus, his response is compassionate, but it isn't implied. No, I won't do that. Because in this case, presence to Jesus meant resisting social pressures of that day, that time, that culture. 
Now you gotta really think about this. Um, this is a continual reality of what Jesus was doing and saying over and over again in context. If you go back to the beginning of chapter 10 and you look at this, he sends out his disciples, right? And he's telling them what to say. The, the kingdom of God is here. It's among you. It's here, right? And, and this is what he's been doing. And the kingdom is breaking in and the kingdom values are just are different. And they resist certain cultural trends. And then after a little bit of dialogue, he tells this story. He tells another story, that a really famous story. You know what the famous story is? The Good Samaritan. We call it the Good Samaritan. Well, what's that story about? So one right preceding your story here. That story is about a man who got robbed and got beaten and then left on the side of the road. Jesus told this story, right? A Jewish priest passes by, but doesn't help. Then a Levite, who's basically a priest's assistant, passes by, who also doesn't help the man who's laying almost dead on the side of the road. Then finally, who stops? A Samaritan, who is a bitter rival, ethnically speaking, to the Jews. And so Jesus <laughs> says, this is the one who stopped and showed compassion and mercy upon the man. Jesus deliberately told that story, which is saying more than just, you should have compassion and mercy. It is saying that, but it's saying much more. Jesus deliberately made the hero of the little story, a Samaritan, to disrupt the Jewish audience in which he was telling it to. He's saying the kingdom is breaking in and the kingdom breaks social conventions and social pressures and cultural norms. So in this case, a Samaritan wasn't supposed to be or inclined culturally speaking to help a Jew and vice versa. And they knew that. And Jesus said that story to say, yeah, yeah, things are gonna be different now that I'm here. And then immediately after this little disruptive story about this Samaritan man, further, Luke further places this story, goes a little bit further. And he said, I'm gonna tell you another story about a woman who broke trends and stepped out of the kitchen. You see what I'm saying? Rest requires this presence to Jesus, this constant continual presence to Jesus, paying attention to Jesus. That means listening to his teaching, noticing his rhythms. I've already said this, but again, keeping that presence requires a continual awareness of where the cultural pressures are coming down on you. What is loading you down culturally speaking? Where are you, how is culture dragging you in places that you have not consented to? At least not consciously, that you've been duped by it. Now, I'm not saying that you'd lack agency here. I'm not saying that at all. I'm simply saying much like Martha, I think we get distracted away from Jesus by the normal and sometimes good things that we feel like we're supposed to do. I tell people all the time and listen very carefully because otherwise I'll get in trouble. We Christians, we, we should all over ourselves. Don't email me, listen to what I just said. Yeah. <laughs> we should all over ourselves. We love our shoulds. I should this, I should that. She should this. Martha said, she should get back in the kitchen. And I think Jesus is saying, where, where, what is all the shoulds? Shoulds are wearing you out. 
Okay, I'm done with that. I'm sorry. Leave that go. We get duped by culture. We get drugged in places we don't want to go. And then we get anxious and we get troubled by it. Look again at what Jesus said. Martha, Martha, verse 41, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. He's saying, Martha, you're anxious and troubled because you're trying to perform and prove yourself in so many areas and you do not have to live that way. He's affectionately reminding her of what's essential to her life. I think he's reminding her that she's trying to perform because she loves Jesus. I think she really loves Jesus. But Jesus is saying, I I don't demand some kind of crazy performance from you. The culture does. I don't. And I don't think Jesus is elevating Mary over her. I think he's just simply saying, Mary, Mary knows what is essential to her life. And that's him, that's Jesus. And that means sometimes stepping out of normal social conventions that might seem strange or odd to the culture, but not to Jesus. And so over the next five weeks, we're gonna look at disciplines of rest that we see in the Bible. But, and, and, and so this is really just, so this morning, it's kind of like set up in a lot of ways. But here's what I just wanna say. This, week one is almost like a warning. Be aware. When we talk about disciplines or rhythms of rest, I, we're talking about being countercultural. They, they push back. They, they're kind of, they're act, they act as resistance to what culture is saying you need to do. Until we get through all these disciplines that we're gonna talk about over the next five weeks, I would just challenge you to get aware of what culture is pressuring you with. Can you name them? You know, can you take time today, this week, to name the things that are coming at you because you're a man, because you're a woman, because you're whatever your job is, or because you're a mom, or you're a dad, or you're a grandma, or you're a grandpa, or whatever, whatever. You know, what are the norms? Not, they're not all bad. I'm not saying they're all bad. What are the norms that are coming at you? And you just have these scripts playing out in your head of like, I, I should be better at this. I should be better at this. I need to do this better and this better and this better and this better. And it's like, man, I'm just exhausted thinking about all of them. What are dragging you away or distracting you from being more present to Jesus? We can learn a lesson here from the good old oak tree. Isaiah 61 says that Christians will one day be called the oaks of righteousness. You know, that's why you're called, we're called the oaks. And in case you don't know that, Isaiah 61. It's not because we live in a neighborhood called the oaks. Oaks, as you probably know, can become mighty symbols of longevity and strength, right? Oak trees. We make floors out of oak. However, occasionally you'll see spindly little tufts called suckers pop up around the base of the tree. This flurry of activity is not a sign of health and flourishing. It's actually a sign of stress, anxiety, and possible panic of an oak tree. The problem is is neither is either uh, near its crown or, or down at the base of the roots. It's being crowded. And it doesn't like that. And it's having to fight for light or nutrients. And so it does this strange thing, this thing that breaks all the rules. It starts to throw up these little plants at the bottom to try to suck up more light and nutrients, which is a complete waste of energy. So it's a sign, it's a signal, it's in trouble. It's freaking out and it's panicked. 
my analogy points to this. A flurry of activity in a life isn't just distracting and depleting, it's also diagnostic. A flurry of activity signals anxiety and trouble as much as it creates more of it. Therefore, I would say this, and this is all I'm asking you uh, uh, this morning and this week, evaluate your life. Like take serious stock and evaluation of what your life looks like. How does it feel? Is there a flurry of activity in it that is just distracting you and wearing you down? Where is this flurry of activity? Does your life look as harried as everyone else's? Because the culture, as we hopefully have established, isn't doing great. So does your life look different? You know, like your morning and evening routines, your workly schedule, your budget, your relationship to your phone, how you manage your resources, time and money and attention, all these things. Does it look like everybody else's in the world? Or does it look different? Are you on brand and on trend? Or are you somehow stepping away from it because you recognize, wait, this isn't working. This is not working. And I don't want my life to be this way. When and where does your life feel crowded? I'm not saying we should drop serving. Our church asks people a lot to serve. I think serving is really, really important. But we're also trying to be, as a staff and as a leadership here, we're trying to be very careful about, well, how much are we doing? Like, are we, is this, if we, if, if people did everything we asked them to do, would, would, there, would this wear them out? And so we're constantly asking these questions and, and saying, hey, like, let's be careful about what we're doing here. Is there a day of the week or parts of your month that just have a flurry of activity? What's, why? What, what is going on there? And what's it aimed at? When you look at what's causing you to be busy, do you really believe in what you're doing? I think that's a really good question. When you look at some of the stuff you're doing with your kids, your family, your friends, what you're doing at the workplace, I would just say this, stop and ask yourself, do you actually believe in it? <laughs> like, or do you, are you giving yourself to it because it's like, well, I'm, all my friends were doing this and I just thought it was appropriate. Is that what you actually really want? Or are you just being duped by the society and the culture around you? Is there anything about your life that breaks social norms? Not out of some kind of radical individualism. We Americans love that. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about being different just so you can be noticed. I, I, I'm talking about going in a different way because of your kingdom principles and how it allows you to be more present to Jesus. And so I would encourage you this morning as we come to the table, I don't know what your impressions are of Jesus. I don't know what you've heard somewhere else or you know, what you got packaged for you growing up or whatever it is. But I would just say this, Jesus is not one who wants to wear you down. He wants to bring peace. I'm all for challenge and I think you will encounter challenge as a Christian. But, but listen, Jesus and what he's offering, he's gentle and lowly of heart. He's not 
His aim is not to make us have a flurry of activity and anxious and troubled all the time. He's not. I just don't see it in the scripture. And so as you come up to the table this morning, remember where we get our sense of peace, where we get our sense of rest. I mean, I think that in many ways, this is why Jesus gave us this symbol, this, this, this bread in which he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. And he took the cup after giving thanks. And he said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. And I think what he's doing when he did this, when he first did this with his disciples before he was taken and he was crucified, I think he's saying, hey, I'm gonna give you a little symbol to remember that I'm your source. I'm your source of life. I'm, I'm, I'm your source of rest. I'm, I'm everything. And I need you to have a, a constant reminder. As often as you gather, I want you to remember this, that you are far, far more than just 24 essential elements. Far, far more than that. You're far, far more important and you know it and you feel it. And whatever's happening in your life, or however you're feeling drug about, you don't need to do that. There's something better. And I would encourage you to keep coming back over the next few weeks and explore this together as a church. You're invited to come over to this station, this station of Jesus is Lord to you. Take a piece of the bread and dip it in the wine or the juice and you're proclaiming the Lord's death until he returns. So that's what we're doing here during this time. But take the space and time you need. Maybe think about some of the questions that I asked about what's going on in your life and how the culture is bearing down on you in a particular way. You know, I would love as a, as a pastor to be able to speak specifically into your life and say, Here, here's the exact thing. And I thought about this all week, but I just can't. I don't know. And so these are things that you're gonna have to talk to the Lord about and let his spirit guide you in the thing that is wearing you down. So let us bow our heads and pray. Lord, we give you thanks this morning. And we ask that in whatever ways uh, there's a flurry of activity that's leading me into being more anxious and more troubled, bring it to my attention. Bring it to all of our attention, bring it to our awareness, bring it into our field of vision so that we might see and we might hear in a new way this morning what's actually happening in our lives. I thank you, Lord, for your grace to, to be patient and stick with us as we continue to figure things out. And Lord, I ask that your spirit guides us into your truth and guides us into your rest. That we don't have to perform. You did all of that on the cross. You took it all. And so we give you thanks this morning. And we take part in this bread and this wine. We take part in this in gratitude and joy. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.